Today's scripture comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were, one, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing walls of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and, by, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Please be seated. Good to see everybody here today. Um, hopefully your summer's going well. Uh, it's winding down quickly though. We're heading into the month of August and then we'll be in the fall again. So um, enjoy it while it lasts. Um, I know some of you are still planning vacations and um, whatnot with your families and your kids and so forth. And so uh, pray that everything goes well for the rest of the summer. We have a retreat next week and um, it's been a while since I actually got to preach here. It's been probably three weeks now and so uh, trying to get back into things here, but it's hard to figure out what to talk about or preach about when next week I won't be preaching again and then I got to resume it again. So I don't want to start necessarily uh, a new subject, but, but it's an important one. And, and so I thought what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a, a general overview, of, an introduction to what we're really going to be talking about. Uh, it's in conjunction with what we did talk about, about discipleship and about community. Um, Pastor James had a good, good couple of great sermons about what it means to to be fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and so we're just kind of working with that. I just want you to know this, though, whether you're an older member here, member of the church, or whether you're visiting, or you're a new member, what I'm about to say is not saying that, oh, there's something wrong with our church, okay? That's what always happens. Like, if I say something negative, it's always like, oh, oh what's wrong with the church? You know, no, no, there's always something wrong with the church, okay? There's always something wrong with the church, but it doesn't mean that I'm picking out one thing because there's this huge issue we've got. It's just a very common issue, and I think particularly for our brand of church, it, it, it's, it's an important one to address. You see, in our church, we're a small group, if you don't notice already, and ethnically and uh, racially pretty much homogenous. Most of you are Korean-American, uh, if not Asian-American, uh, or you're married to an Asian-American. I, I don't know what it is, but... We're, we're pretty much similar, we're familiar with this age-wise. We are similar in, in demographic a little bit, uh, getting older, everybody. I think that's pretty much the same. Geographically, a little bit more diverse. We're kind of all spread out, either, whether it's from Long Island to, to upstate New York to central Jersey to west Jersey. It's, 
a little bit different, but think about this, okay? In a small church like ours, as small as it is, you would think that a smaller group would have an easier time to get along, right? To, to do things together, to, to like each other, to love each other, to never fight, to never have a conflict. You would think that in a smaller group, that would be easier to do. You would think that in a smaller group, you would be able to find a person or a couple of people that you could really connect with and really de- develop intimate relationships with because there's nobody else, right? You have no choice. Uh, and you would think that the case is. But, and, and this is just my experience. I visit a lot of churches, but this is my experience of our particular church. As small as we are, we are very different in personality types. They are very diverse in temperamental types. Uh, we have different perspectives on how we do life. Many of us have very opposite polar extremes of sense of humor. Some of us politically affiliated very differently, very, in fact, opposite of one another, right? In a smaller church such as ours, as ethnically or homogeneously ethnic as we are, there's a lot of diversity, a lot of differences, a lot of uniqueness in certain people. And you have to wonder, uh, when you have such differences, even in a small church like ours, do we get along? There are three things I want to talk about today really quickly. Number one, what is the church? Number two, what do I think is sometimes our problem? And number three, what do we need? Okay, what's the church? What's I think sometimes our problem? What's my problem? And, 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 what, and what do we need? Okay, so what, what is the church? Let me start with this. In 1991, on March 3rd, the L.A. police chased down a black man by the name of Rodney King, and they caught him. The officers pulled him out of the car, and they beat him brutally, while an amateur cameraman by the name of George Holliday caught it all on videotape. These four LAPD officers involved were indicted on charges of assault with a deadly weapon, excessive use of force by an officer. But what happened, if you remember, is that after a three-month trial, a predominantly white jury acquitted the officers, and it inflamed the citizens, sparking the infamous and violent 1992 L.A. riots. Six days of rioting that resulted in 63 people being killed, more than 2,300 injured, 12,000 people arrested, and about $1 billion in property damage. The California Army National Guard and the federal troops from the 1st Marine Division were were called in to help restore order. More than 3,600 fires were set. 1,100 buildings were looted and destroyed. And by this time, it wasn't just a black or white thing. My uncle, who owned a store in downtown LA in K-Town, it was also an Asian thing. They were all buying guns because you needed a gun. And of course, as you think about this now, superficially speaking, we could say that the core of this is crazy. The core of the problem is really, really crazy because it seems like the core of the problem was only skin deep. That difference in the color of your skin, who would have ever thought could be such a source of injustice and wrong? It's not a sin to be a different color. It seemed obvious enough to me. Different color is just different. And yet we know that racism like this still exists, of every kind, still exists today. Racism is a sin. 
And we, know now, we now know that it's, it's more than just skin deep. It goes really deep. And we're still dealing with it today like never before. But on 1992, on May 1st, Rodney King, the guy who got beat up, was in an interview, in a famous interview. Memes were made about his, his, what his statement was, and he said these famous words, quote, people, I just want to say, can't we all get along? Can't we all get along? What is the church? If I had to pick a Bible or a book in the Bible to talk about what the church is, Ephesians is pretty good. There are many ways to describe what the church is. Oh, it's a place of worship. Oh, it's the people of God. Oh, the church is the bride of Christ, so on and so forth. But for our purposes today, right, from our passage today, I want to define it this way. Church is a place where its members get the power, the resources to get along with people who are deeply, deeply different from you. Church is a place where despite the differences, are able to live in a kind of unity with people, with all kinds of different people that even normally outside the church you would want nothing to do with. And I'm not just talking about different race or ethnicities, but I'm also talking about different personality types, different, different affinities and hobbies, different senses of humor, different political affiliations, different vocations. That's what the church is. When you look at verses 19 to verse 22, you look at how Paul describes the church, and he uses three metaphors, okay? Let me just go over this really quickly. Three metaphors. Verse 19, he says, you are fellow citizens. And you know what citizenship is. Uh, most of us, if not all of us here, are U.S. citizens, and as U.S. citizens, there is sort of a, 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 an obligation we have to fellow citizens in this country, or maybe you're a Korean citizen, and that's who your nationality is, or, uh, some of you are still Canadian in your citizenship. But what Paul's saying is, as a Christian, there's a citizenship that supersedes even that. You're citizens of the kingdom of God. That's what he describes them. But the second metaphor he uses is, he says, you're also a household. In verse 19, household, what's that? that that's family. That God is not just a creator, but he's also a father. And because he's the father, that means What? We're to be brothers and sisters. That's the church metaphor. And then the third metaphor that Paul uses in our passage is in verse 21. He describes the church and people as a building, a temple joined together, built up together, and God inhabits it, dwells in us, with us. Notice in each of these metaphors, relationally, it becomes more and more intense, more and more intimate with respect to God and with respect to each other. Think about this. Look at these metaphors. With respect to God, a king lives in the same country with his citizens. That's us. We're citizens of his kingdom, and the king lives there. But a father lives in the same home. As his children, it's even more intimate. But the third imagery, when he says we're a temple, he says God 
dwells in us, inhabits us. These metaphors are increasing in intensity and in, in the intimacy as it goes on and on from your citizens to your family to your building. Why? Because God lives in his kingdom, but he's also your father in the house, and he dwells within us. And it's the same with people. With respect to people, these metaphors increase in their intimacy. You're all citizens. That means we're all fellow neighbors, and we treat each other as you would want your neighbor to treat you. But then he says, you are also brothers and sisters. And you know family. You're bound together by genetics. You're bound together by growing up together, just doing life together, experiencing things from a very early age to even adulthood. Well, what about the building? We're all building. How are we intimate with one another in that sense? You're cemented. Like building blocks, you're cemented together. There's a bond that Paul says Christians have with one another in the church. Now, what's the point I'm trying to make here? Let me ask you a question. Whether it's citizenship, whether it's family, whether it's a building... Do any of these metaphors fit in with you showing up to church a few times a month to hear a sermon? Do any of these metaphors sound like it's possible with someone just showing up to church on a Sunday for an hour? If this is how Paul describes the church and its relationships... Do any of these metaphors fit in with just attending a few times? Of course not. We're supposed to be bonded together. There's supposed to be a sort of intimacy that's required, that's necessary, that's inevitable when the church is being a church. Because for Paul, he says that when God comes into the picture, when Jesus saves people, He brings them together. He binds them together. He dwells with them. This is what God says we've been created for. This is why God says he's created the church for. This is the kind of community that you and I have been created for. Now, let's be real for a moment. I know some of you are thinking, eh, you know, he's talking about community. He's talking about people. Yeah, I'm not sure I really care about it as much as long as I get what I need and and, uh, you know, my sermon is good, and I can just go. Or you might feel like, yeah, you know, I, I, I want that kind of community, but I just don't feel it in, in my situation right now. It doesn't feel like that in, in my church, because I don't, I don't really interact with certain people. I've been going to church with the same group of people for past 15 years, and I haven't said one word to them. I, don't, I just don't feel very close with anyone. You see the same people every week, and it just never seems to get past the superficial And then others of us, well, you see the same people every week, and man, that's enough, right? Because I can't take them all. I can't take it too much, or I can't take too much of them. Why? Because we, well, you know, we're just different. We just don't click. You know why it's hard sometimes uh, to be the church, to get along, to get along the way God intended? Here's, here's, what, here's, here's just my, my assessment. You first go to a church, and maybe you're a visitor or you know, a newcomer, and, 
and say, oh, you know, people are so nice. Yeah, they're so nice. Church is really nice. It's, it's, it's great. You know, everyone seems so friendly, right? Um, and then you keep going. But you only go once a week. And an hour a week, two hours a week at that. Of course it's always going to feel pretty good. But you hang out a little bit longer. You start saying things. Two-week mission trips, which, you know, we do, but a lot of churches do. One of the rules of thumb that I always tell them every trip, and they always say, no, not us, but every trip. The first week of the trip, it's going to take you guys to just get along. And then the second week, you become more effective in doing things. You know why that is? Because you're going to live, eat, work, pray, serve with people in your church 24-7 for two whole weeks. And you've never done that before. You've never spent so much time with them before. Because all we do is we see each other once a week, a couple hours a day, maybe a few friends during the week, but you have not spent enough time with each other. And when that happens, you start seeing things, you start interacting with things that you didn't see before, that you didn't know. And they start seeing things about you that they didn't know. And things happen. Think about this. Uh, one of the metaphors Paul uses is we're a family. You're brothers and sisters. Ooh. Right? It's, it's, it's true. It sounds nice. I mean, family's supposed to be close. Family's supposed to be there for one another. It sounds nice. It sounds good. But you know, what, you know what's hard about family? You know what's hard about family? Your family really knows you. They know your issues. They know your weaknesses. They know your differences. Your brothers, your sisters, your mother, your father, they know all your faults. Why? Because they've lived with it for so long. They've grown up with it. They've seen it. You can't hide it from them. They tell you. They're obligated kind of to tell you. You know, you've got issues. In a family, you live in a relationship with people that are so deep, like brothers and sisters, mother and father, children and parents, that you can't help but talk about the issues. Why? Because you've shown it to them, intentionally or not. They've seen it. You grew up with it. That's what family does. You hang around long enough, consistently enough, with brothers and sisters in the church. You eat with them. You serve with them. You pray with them. You get in close proximity enough with them. You're going to see some stuff. You're going to see some stuff about you, and they're going to see stuff about, and they're going to see stuff about them. You learn stuff about others, and you're thinking, oh my goodness, I didn't know about these people. I didn't know about that person. And now you do, and it's not fun. And I'm here to tell you, that's the way it's supposed to be in the church. Because Hebrews 13 says that as a church, we are to exhort one another daily so that we're not hardened. And the premise of this verse is that sometimes our sin is deceitful because we don't always see ourselves and we don't always see it in other people. But what a family is supposed to do when it's happening is that they are supposed to come in and they're supposed to exhort you. These are some struggles that you're having that I see. Can I help you? These are some struggles that I'm going through. Can you help me see this? Can you help me? It happens not on social media. This can't happen. This interaction of exhorting one another because we see issues in one another, it doesn't happen when you're texting. It won't happen in your group chats. Not even Zoom is going to work. I mean, all these things can be helpful, but it's not the same. 
your fellow citizens, because God is king. Your brothers and sisters, the family, because God is your father. And together, we're the temple or the building, because God dwells within us, and he cemented us together. Now, you might be thinking, well, how long? How long are we together, right? A couple of weeks, a couple hours, you know, maybe once a week. For eternity. Eternity. And I know that some of you might, that might scare some of you. But I want you to know this, okay? Practically speaking, practically speaking, it does mean we are this. But what it means is we're capable of being this. We just don't always execute on it. We've been created for this kind of community, this kind of church, but we don't always execute on it. How is that possible? How is that possible? Okay, so here's what I think our problem is. Again, I, I'm, this is just an introduction, all right? I'm going to go into a little bit more, so um, you know, don't worry. But what's our problem? It's deeper than you think. Okay. There's a word in our passage that's repeated twice. It's in verse 14, and it's in verse 16. That word is hostility. Hostility. And in verse 16, again, that God in the body through the cross, thereby killing, what? The hostility. In this church, you had Gentile Christians, basically non-Jewish people, and you had Jewish Christians who were Jewish backgrounds being together in one church. And they were having a problem getting along. And what Paul says is the reason why they're not getting along is because between them is hostility. Hostility. Hostile. What do you think about when I say someone is hostile? Oftentimes we think of somebody who's ready to fight. They're hostile. They're ready to get into it. They're ready to fight. But the Greek word here is a little more carefully. Let's do a little Bible study. Um, the Greek word for hostility in English is literally enmity or hate. And you might think, well, there's hate because they don't like sin. You know, Christians hate sin. That's what it is. But that's not what quite is going on in our passage. You see, in this New Testament church, Christian, uh, Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians were living together, worshiping together, serving together. In other words, you had brothers and sisters from different backgrounds, a different race, different ethnicity, different upbringing, different religious experiences, and yet what Paul implies here is that there were hostility. There was hate between Christians who were Jewish and Christians who weren't. They were hating on each other. That's what hostility here means. But it wasn't necessarily because of any particular sin. It probably wasn't a sin. It was because of difference. Jewish Christians thought they were close to God because why? They had the law of Moses. God gave us the Ten Commandments. God gave us all these rules, and so we know how to get close to God. They were religious. They grew up this way. So they looked at the non-Jewish Christians. They say, God, you guys, oh my gosh, you're so ignorant, right? You're so wishy-washy in your faith. You know, you just kind of just do whatever you want to do. Yeah, you, don't, you don't know the laws like we do. You don't know the Bible like we do. And so you're not fit to be called a Christian like us. But the Gentile Christians, the non-Jewish Christians, they, they also believed that they were close to God, 
But, but they didn't grow up with the law. They didn't have the, law, the commandments. Uh, and a lot of it, they didn't feel applied to them. It just wasn't their experience. They weren't keen on the laws. But then when they saw the Jewish Christians in their church, they're like, oh my God, those Christians, they're so judgmental, right? They're so snobby, so legalistic. They always talk about what's right and wrong, and they always think they're right or, you know, we're wrong. And so they're just legalistic. They need to loosen up. And so there's this, what Paul calls hostility, enmity, hate, disdain, looking down on one another in the church, and it grew. And what did they do? They excluded one another. That's how it came out. They may have worshipped together, but after service, they wouldn't eat together. Um, They wouldn't want to hang out with each other afterwards. Again, not necessarily because of any one real sin, but ultimately because they just had so many differences. They hated on each other. The church in Ephesus were haters. They drank too much of the haterade, right? Haters are going to hate. And I think what Paul is showing us is that in the human heart, there is an enmity, there is a natural hate, not just because the other people are wrong, but simply because they might just be different. Let me ask you a question today. Are you a hater? People are like, <laughs> are you a hater? How, what, what is a hater? It depends on who you ask. Because if you talk to a lover, they'll say this. A hater is a person that doesn't like specific people or things. They're always negative and critical, and they're always taking things down. They're just Debbie Downers all the time. That's what some people say, and it's true. But if you ask a hater what a hater is, you know what they say? This is what a hater is. Haters, when somebody calls you, they call you a hater because you're being truthful and reasonable about something, and they don't want to accept the fact that you're right, right? A hater is a person that just expressing a different opinion other than the one that they have, and they just don't like it. We're just keeping it real. And if you can't take that, I guess we can't hang. You're a hater. You got truth, maybe, but you got no love. Miroslav Volf, a Croatian uh, professor of theology at Yale University, says this, quote, not quote, but he just, let me summarize it this way. There are four ways in history that people have hated on people. Four ways. One, decimation. Wipe them out. Kill them all. Two, assimilation. We don't accept them until they become like us. Three, subjugation. We make these people serve us, slavery. And the fourth way he says that we hate on people is this. We ignore them. We don't engage. We don't care. We disdain them. And sorry to say, But Christians in history have done all of these things. And to the extent that we've done it, we deny the very heart of our faith. But guess what? Out of all these four things, the easiest thing to do here, to hate on someone, guess which one it is? You can't decimate people here anymore, right? Uh, Assimilation is a little too much work. Subjugation, slavery is outlawed. Just ignore it. Just ignore. 
Just exclude those people. Just exclude. So the Gentile Christians, the non-Jewish Christians in the church, they were saying, I don't hate. We, we don't hate. That's a strong word. Hate's a strong word. We like to live and let live. I just don't engage because we're just different and we're just unique. No, you're a hater. And the Jewish Christian was saying, oh, my gosh, I can't believe they would say that. I can't believe they would do that. I can't believe they would think that. that I think that's just so wrong. So I'm not, I don't want to talk to them anymore. You're morally arrogant and self-righteous. Anytime you say, I, I, I can't believe they would do this, I can't believe they would do this, what you're really saying is this, I would never do that. Because I would never think that. I would never say that. And you look down upon them. You're a hater. So we've got a church of haters here. Again, I'm not saying we're a hater church. I'm a hater, okay? So what do we do? What do we need, all right? This is what the church is, what Paul says the church is. This is the problem, hostility, hate, right? And, and so what do we need? What do we do? What does Paul tell them to do? What did Paul tell the church in Ephesus? And, and so... Okay, let's do a little Bible study again. There's a structure here in our passage from verses 11 to verse 22 that gives us some insight here. And it's what we call a then and now structure. And he's talking to the Gentile, the non-Jewish Christians. And in verses 11 to 13, the first part in the beginning, he says, this is what you guys were back then. And then verses 19 to 22, the end of our passage, this is what you guys are now. So there's a then and now structure in the whole thing, right? And so when he begins in verses 11 to 13, as he's talking to the non-Jewish Christians, he says, back then, verse 12, you were separated. You were alienated. You were strangers. You were without God. You had no hope in God's promises. In other words, back then, you were excluded. But now, verse 19 to 22, he says this, you're no longer strangers and aliens. Now you're fellow citizens with the saints and the members of God's family. You're built on the foundation. Jesus is the cornerstone. You're a building together with all these other Christians. That's what you are now. And if you want to know what happened, how, how God made that possible, between the then and the now, between verses 11 to 13 and 19 to 22, you look in the middle Verses 13 to verse 16, and that's the key to how that all happened. Verse 13 begins this way. But now. This is what you were like back then. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near. You know, far and near, it, it's a term in Jewish, Jewish mind that when they said they were far, it means they weren't part of the community. They were excluded. They weren't part of the Jewish community. And to be brought near for the Jewish mind meant now they're included in the community. And Jesus here seems to be saying that those non-Jewish Christians, you were far, you were excluded, but now by his blood you have been brought near. And he now has destroyed, he's destroyed the hate between Jews and Gentiles. Sounds good, right? If you're a Jewish Christian, it sounds good. Because when the Jewish Christians heard this, they said, aha. See, even Paul says it. He's talking to you Gentiles, you non-Jews. And he said, this is what Jesus did for you. And now you are added to us. 
You become like one of us. You've been included into our family. And this is why you've got to assimilate. This is why you've got to get up with the program. Get with the program. And be like us. But that's not what Paul's saying. He has something different in mind. When you look at the center of this passage, and you look at verse 15, look at what Paul says. He says that he abolished the law of commandments expressed in the ordinance. Why? So that he might create himself one new man in place of two. So making peace. He doesn't say he's going to create one group by adding these Gentiles to you and they're all going to be like you. No, he says two groups completely different into one man. How does he do this? In verse 16, he reconciles us both to God through the body of the cross, killing the hostility. Listen to what Paul says very carefully. He's talking to now not just the, the Gentiles, now he's talking to the Jewish Christians. How do I know this? Because in verse 16, he says he did this to reconcile us both, both the Jews and the Gentiles. It wasn't just the faraway Gentiles. It was also those nearby Jews that had to be reconciled. It wasn't just the faraway Gentiles that needed reconciliation. It was the Jews who thought they were near to God. In verse 16, you're told it's both Jew and Gentile that are brought to God. Both Jew and Gentile that are now given access to him, verse 18. Both Jew and Gentile that are now made into the heavenly temple indwelt by him. Both the faraway Gentiles and the Jewish Christians who thought they were so near to God needed reconciliation with God because there was hostility between God and God and all of these people. Here's what I mean. The Gentile Christians were saying, hey, I'm a good person because look at what I've done in my life. I've done so many good things. And you know, you know if you're like this, you're not perfect. You know you're not perfect. And so you're always wondering if you're really that good because you're not sure if you've done enough. But the Jewish Christians, they're, they're the religious people, right? But they do the same thing that the non-Jewish Christians did. Hey, I'm a good person too. Because why? Because I go to church. And I read the law, and I read the Bible, and I serve in the church, and, and I pray, and I pray things like, I thank God that I'm not like them. You're a moralist. Both Gentile and Jewish Christians needed to get reconciled before God. There was hostility between them and God. Here's what I'm saying. You see why racism is wrong? Because there's only one race with a problem. It's the human race. It's the human race. Both Jews and non-Jews, that's everyone. There's a hostility between a holy God and sinful people. And, and what Paul is saying here in verse 16 is that the hostility, the hate between God and people has been abolished. Vertical reconciliation between God, it's been abolished. And because that's been abolished, verse 15, the hate between people and people are also removed. So that he makes two people completely different into one. Okay? Now let me just end with this. How did, how did God do this? Okay? 
Um, in the end of verse 16, he says this, he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross by killing the hostility. Think about this. Uh, one body on the cross. Who's that? It, that's Jesus. So he's talking about the death of Jesus on a cross. But he, he doesn't mention Jesus there in that verse. It doesn't say Jesus was killed. What does he say? He says hostility was killed. Hate was killed. And in verse 16, Paul's trying to tell these people that God put to death their hate. He slew the hate. On the cross, he killed the hate. But you and I know the only thing that died on a cross was Jesus. So what does that mean? It means what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 29, or 21, and he says this, For our sake he made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we would become the righteousness of God. That's what Paul says. He says, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin. It doesn't mean that he made him to be sinful. Jesus wasn't sinful. He made him to be sin. Jesus was sin on the cross, and what he got on the cross is how God would deal with sin. How he should have been treated. How hate and enmity should be treated. That on the cross, Jesus in our place how God should have treated us. And so when Paul says in our passage that he killed the hate, it's because Jesus became hate for us. He killed the hate when Jesus died. That's why you were like this before, but now you're not. He killed the hate on the cross. That's why you were far off, excluded, but now you've been included. He killed the vertical hate, the enmity between God and man. Now there's peace. And that's why he says in verse 15, you Jews and Gentiles need to kill the hate. Here's what I want to know, and next time we meet, we'll, we'll talk about how this looks, how this works out, okay? Haters are going to hate. But I want you to know this. Jesus died for your hate. He was hated in the most visceral way. He was betrayed. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was rejected. He was excluded. And then he was crucified on a cross. He died for your hate. He took the hate and then he killed it. Why? So that you wouldn't have to go on hating in whatever form. If you say the gospel is true, if what he did on the cross has really happened, and he's created us to be his church, still not perfect, still sinful, still need to grow, then what do you think we need to work on? Killing the hate. Killing the hate. The feelings of hate. The words of hate. The acts of hate angry words, insulting words, arrogant superiority issue words, cold silence, looks of disdain and, oh my goodness, I can't believe, or even just plain indifference. 
got to die. It's got to die. If Jesus did what he did, and he removed the hostility when he died on the cross, it means that he's given us everything we need to kill the hate. Okay? And so the next time we meet, we'll see how that works. But for now, let's take a moment to pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you so much for your mercy. We thank you so much for your love. We, we say this all the time in church, and, and sometimes it just flows out of our lips because we're so used to saying things and just doing things. Uh, it's become routine and mundane for us, and sometimes, Lord, it just uh, it doesn't mean that much practically, functionally. We, we, we go our ways, and we do our thing, and, and uh, Lord, we ought to think about it, take a pause a moment, and to wonder, like, why you still love us, why you still care, why you still say in your word that you are our Father in heaven and that will never change um, because we are certainly undeserving of your faithfulness and loyalty. And yet that's so true what you said to us. And so, Lord, we pray that whatever we know about the gospel, whatever we know about faith in Christ and Christianity, we pray that you would remove those things which are irrelevant, deepen those things which are central and crucial to understanding our faith in you, so that our life might express, Lord, your grace, your love, your holiness, not just inwardly and, and, and meditatively and, and intellectually, but fruitfully, thoughtfully, practically expressed to the very people that we see every week. And then those outside, at work, at home, where we may be, Wake us up in a way that our eyes are open to you. Help us to come to you in our need for more patience, more grace. Give us what you say we have, the strength to kill the animosity, the hostility, the anger, the hate that is so, so rampant today in our world. The church needs to hear the message of the world. They need the message of the church. And the only way they'll see that, Lord, is if we, the church, be the church. So give us that grace to do that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.